Our Heavenly Father, we praise you because you are the source and giver of all truth. And we praise you because the truth is not abstract or far off. It has a real tangible impact on our lives, and it's near to us in your word and in your son. The truth brings real freedom where false teaching brings a heavy burden. We praise you because by believing the words of your son, we are set free from sin and made full sons and daughters of you. So we give you all of our praise and we consecrate ourselves. We set our whole selves apart from the ways of the world and the teachings of the world so that we can be wholly devoted to you and to the truth. Lord, we welcome the truth because it sets us free. So we confess even difficult truths like the iniquity that lies in our own hearts. We all have pride in our hearts that sets us up as the authority on truth. We justify and excuse behavior that you have clearly forbidden. Have mercy on us and let us not be wrapped up in lies that will harden us to the truth. In the darkness and in the solitude of our minds, our character is revealed, and it makes plain that we still do the works of our old father. There are corners in each of our hearts that need the light of your truth to shine in. Forgive us, Father. None of us can come to you in strength or wisdom that you haven't given us. In our confession, we call on the truth that when we confess our sins, we agree with you on what is good and what is evil, and you are faithful to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Father, we long for the peace that will come when you put an end to all of your enemies, when you bring an end to all war, and when every knee bows to you in submission. We ask that you would bring that day soon, and we especially pray for the believers who are affected by pride and hate-fueled wars around the world. We pray for the churches in Burkina, and in Israel, and in Myanmar, and in Sudan, Ukraine, and all other places in the world where wickedness is displayed through military violence. We ask that our brothers and sisters would know your comfort and would know Christ and his ways in a way that sustains them as they wait on you. Save them from the destruction around them so that they can gather and sing your praises and preach your gospel. Give them unwavering confidence that these wars are ultimately rebellion against your rule and you will not fail to defeat all rebellion. We pray and let them pray that those who do violence would turn to you, repent of their sins, and know what it means to be part of your family. But where they will not repent, we know that you reserve vengeance for yourself and you will return these violent acts upon their own heads. Lord, there is so much about you and this world that we can't comprehend. Give us patience. Help us to wait for you and your revelation so that we would not fall for what is false. Keep us from itching ears that desire falsities that feel better than the truth. We pray that the bounty of truth that you have given us in your word would satisfy us. Give us a hunger for your truth that we would never stray from it. Calm our minds that we would be sober-minded Soften our hearts so we can accept your truth. We pray all of this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. You can have a seat. And you can open up in your Bibles to John chapter 8. 
John chapter 8. It is wonderful to be worshiping with all of you today. It's always a blessing to go on vacation, but it's also a blessing to be able to come home and praise the Lord with our church family. Uh, And so I'm excited to be here again today preaching with you. It's an honor. Uh, Thank you to Kelton and Ryan for giving me a bit of a reprieve the last few weeks. I hope you were as blessed by the ministry of the word that they delivered as I was. I'm thankful to the Lord that our time in the first book of the Psalms was edifying and encouraging. I look forward to getting into the next book of the Psalms at some point in the future. Um, But today, though, we embark on a new sermon series, and we are a church, uh, for those of you that have been here a long time, you know this, we're a church that preaches expositionally, which means that the main point of the original author's writing to the original audience's receiving is the main point of the sermon. It exposes the original meaning. That's what expositional means. And we usually do this through an entire book, and we will continue to do that as we will move forward into 1 Corinthians at the first of the year. But for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be preaching expositionally from a number of different texts throughout the Bible, not one specific book. Now, let me explain why we're doing this by way of a metaphor. This is an odd thing for us as a church, but I want to just explain to you why I think that this is appropriate for us in this uh, point in time. Uh, This last year, I jumped back into coaching uh, basketball in a big way uh, at a small school where my sons attend classes. And because it's a small school, there are times when I'm coaching where I have a player on one hand who has honed a skill uh, playing with another, on the other hand, who's never even conceptualized that same skill. And it's in those moments uh, that I found that if I continue on as if everyone is as, um, at the same experience level and knowledge level, I'm going to end up leaving behind many of those talented players who have the zeal and potential but lack the experience of certain principles. And so in those moments, I need to pause and build everyone up in the basics. Now, one might think that those who are farther along might get a bit bored with that, but I find that realigning the whole group, those who are reminded of the basics, actually become even much stronger. And so you have people on both sides that get elevated in what they're trying to perceive and understand and act in. Now, you might say, well, that's a sporting metaphor. Well, Paul liked his sporting metaphors too, right? That's part of the Christian walk is, is, uh, is this striving to grow. And so what we're going to be doing for the next 10 weeks is getting back to the basics. We're going to be getting back to the fundamentals. And we'll be focusing on the reality that how a person understands and reads, interprets, and applies the word of God will show whether there is truth in their declaration that Jesus is Lord of their lives. And I want to focus on our use of the word of God in the life of the Christian for the next 10 weeks. You might think, how are we going to pull 10 weeks out of that? Oh, we could spend years. But we're going to focus for 10 weeks on our use of the word of God in the life of the Christian. And so the entire series that we're going to go through, I've entitled The Lordship of Christ in the Life of the Christian. The Lordship of Christ in the Life of the Christian. That's the series title. Now my hope in expositing a number of scriptures from throughout God's word is that we can develop a consistent and unified understanding of how we, as Christians, are to approach and submit to the word of God as an extension of the lordship of Christ over our lives. Now, for some of you, this will be the steps you need to truly embrace the word of God. You might be the person who, when asked uh, about your reading plan, you say, well, I'm not reading as much as I should. 
right? I hear that a lot as a pastor, as much as I should. We have an inherent knowledge that we as Christians need to be in the Word. So I'm hopeful that for those of you that might fall into that category, this sermon series is going to help you really embrace the Word of God in a new way. For others, it may simply be a reminder to get back to basics. It may reinforce for you why you're already in the Word a great deal. For all of us as a church, it will elevate the culture of discipleship within the church and glorify God to a greater and greater degree. I truly believe that. And for the women in this church, attending the conference on discipleship today and then entering into the Bible study, I think this series will set the stage for what you will be doing. And men, I'm not leaving you alone. We're going to be getting into a Bible study as well in the future, uh, but we're kind of trying to build up the women first, learn some things, and then we'll roll out to the men as well. And so I feel like the Lord is doing something in the midst of our church where he is bringing us back to the basics of what lordship in our lives looks like. So let's start at the beginning of the Christian walk to set the stage a bit before we get into our main text. Uh, let's look at Matthew 28 on the screen here. Just for a minute, this sets the stage of kind of what it is to be a Christian. And this is known as the Great Commission, the great command that Jesus gave to his disciples as they began to establish what we know as the church. Now, really quickly, before we get into John, just notice with me a few things here, okay? Let's read it all together from the screen. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So let's just go through a couple of questions here. Who has the authority? Jesus does. How much authority does he have? All the authority. What is the dominion or the boundaries of that authority? Heaven and earth. In other words, the entirety of the physical and spiritual realms. Who gave him the authority? Well, the one who innately has authority over those realms, God the Father, the Creator. And what are we to do, therefore, because this authority has been given? We're to go. Where do we go? Well, into all the world. In other words, no matter where you go, no matter where you're at, as you are going, we are to make disciples. This is for missionaries, yes, but this is for every single disciple of Jesus Christ. This is where we get the mission statement of our church. And really, it's the mission statement of any church, making disciples of Jesus by teaching, equipping, and sending. So then what is the physical marking and ceremony that outwardly shows that you or I are now under the authority of Christ? It's baptism by the church. And what is the authority of that vow? That's the authority of the triune God behind it. So for the baptized believer, all of that within this section of text has already occurred. Jesus has been given the authority. He sent his people out. And we have been baptized to sit under that authority. So what is it that now characterizes Christ's disciples? Where in our current lives are we within this text? Well, verse 20, the disciples of Jesus, or literally the word disciple means learners, are to be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. That's the job of the church. That's the job of discipleship. And the word observe here means to understand, obey, and apply in our lives. It is to live under the authority of God in ever-increasing measure until glory comes. And who is it who will help us to do this? Well, Christ himself will, under the sovereignty of the Father and through the power of his Spirit, which is holy. Now, summing all this up, 
I think a great way to put it is a quote from the famous Anglican theologian, J.I. Packer. He puts it wonderfully in his book, Concise Theology. Listen to this quote. The Christian principle of biblical authority means, on the one hand, that God purposes to direct the belief and behavior of his people through the revealed truth set forth in Holy Scripture. On the other hand, it means that all our ideas about God should be measured, tested, and where necessary, corrected and enlarged by reference to biblical teaching. Authority in Christianity belongs to God the Creator, who made us to know, love, and serve him, and his way of exercising his authority over us is by means of the truth and wisdom of his written word. And since the Father has now given the Son executive authority to rule the cosmos on his behalf, Scripture now functions precisely as the instrument of Christ's lordship over his followers. Let's look at that last piece again. Scripture now functions precisely as the instrument of Christ's lordship over his followers. In other words, looking at this from a different angle, let me pose it to you as a question. How do you know that Christ is truly your Lord if Scripture does not function as the instrument of his lordship in your life? How do you know that Christ is truly your Lord if Scripture does not function as the instrument of his lordship in your life? You see, one of the things that you'll notice if you hang around self-professed Christians long enough is that our lives are often governed not by the word, but by our thoughts and opinions about the word. And that is not the word. Or it's governed by others' thoughts and opinions about the word. But that is not the word. One is objective, the word of God. The other is subjective, our opinions about the word of God. In one, it is the word itself that has authority. In the other, it is our own self that claims authority. And so it is the job of every Christian disciple to spend their lives slowly but surely removing their false authority over the word so that the word of God itself can objectively rule over our lives. Now this brings us to our first issue of fundamentals. We must begin with definitions because words matter and words have been massively contorted and perverted in our day. You may have noticed as I read G.I. Packer's quote how many times he used the word truth. And the first step for us this morning is to establish where truth comes from. And so that is the topic that we're going to cover in this first sermon of the series, the, the objective truth of the Lord's word. Where does truth come from? It comes from the objective truth of the Lord's word. And you can add a subtitle underneath that based on the text we're going to look at today in John. We're also going to look at the subjective deception of the father of lies. The objective truth of the Lord's word and the subjective deception of the father of lies. Now, because we're dealing with these phrases a lot, throughout the, the rest of the time in our sermon, let me define them for you. The first thing I want to define is the word truth. I know I'm already stepping into a landmine here. The word truth. Truth is, 
something that's in accordance with fact or reality. Now, right away, this definition causes issues in our culture, doesn't it? We live in a culture where someone who is in reality one gender can claim to be another gender. That's, that's going on in our society. It is one of the main topics in our society. And so truth is trying to be rewritten. The heresy of our day is the manipulation of this definition to be subjective. We say phrases in our culture like, my truth, and your truth, and their truth. But attaching these grammatical possessive determiners to the word truth actually makes the statement contradictory. For in reality, truth cannot be relative to the one observing it. We have greatly confused one's sensory experience of reality with objective reality itself. And this shift from objective to subjective truth has been happening since the fall, as we'll see. But it has reached an apex in our day that is arguably unlike any other previous generation. Let me give you a quick example. On the plane flight home from vacation, there was a woman wearing a t-shirt that said this on the back. Dear person behind me, the world is a better place because you are in it. Signed, the person in front of you. My immediate thought was this. But what if the person behind her is a serial killer, a pedophile, a spousal abuser, a terrorist, or a drug smuggler? That statement would be factually inaccurate. This person believes that by wearing this shirt, they will make someone who is acting evil act morally because they are affirmed. It is the general ignorant ethos of our day that is represented in that t-shirt. She has confused, confused objective truth with her subjective view of the world. She's probably a wonderful person who wants the world to be nice and kind. But friends, the world is not nice and kind because it is under the grip of Satan. There is an objective truth and there is subjectivity. Subjectivity is not objective truth. Now, for our purposes today, when we use these phrases, I want us to understand what they are. So let me define two more. First, objective truth. Objective truth is a statement that has a definite correspondence to reality, independent of anyone's feelings or biases. Subjective truth, which in and of itself I know is an oxymoron, but it's a statement that is dependent upon one's own sensory experience of reality. To be objective is to be outside of oneself. To be subjective comes from inside oneself. Now, for example, the objective truth is that at this moment in time and space, this Bible right here exists on this music stand. Now, close your eyes for a second. Can you see the Bible on the music stand? You would say, no, my eyes are closed. Your subjective experience is that the Bible does not exist. But here's the problem. Your subjective truth is inaccurate because if you open your eyes back up, the objective truth is that this Bible exists on this stand. Objective truth is something that exists outside of our sense of it. Subjective truth is something that exists only 
inside our sense of it. Now, why are we beginning this study with these definitions and discussion of objectivity and subjectivity in the relationship to truth? Because the discussion of reality, the discussion of what is, leads to the question of who defines it, and therefore, who is in authority. It leads to the topic of lordship. It leads to the topic of lordship. The person who defines what is, is the Lord. And it's either going to be you in subjectivity or the Lord in objectivity. And as we're going to see in our text this morning, there has been a spiritual war from the very beginning on this topic of truth, of reality. And that war has reached a fever pitch in the day in which we live. So we must be acutely aware of the context in which we live so that we can accurately define lordship in the life of the Christian. So let's now go to our text in the book of John. And in our remaining time, we're going to un- let it unpack this topic a bit for us. Let's go ahead and look at John 8, 31 through 47 uh, as I read it this morning. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The first thing that we need to understand in this idea of truth and deception is that as the creator God, by definition, he is the one who defines objective truth. The creator God, by definition, is the one who defines objective truth. Now, we immediately understand here that Jesus is dealing with the topic of his authority as the one who bears the truth. The Jews that are standing here are fighting back and saying, no, we already have the truth. It's in the Mosaic law. And Jesus is saying, guys, I am the physical manifestation of God's word. And they're fighting him and debating him. But let's pause a moment to set the stage here a bit. 
If Jesus said this in our day of relativity and subjectivity, someone from the crowd would most likely respond with, well, maybe that's your truth, but I have my own truth, and being true to myself is what will set me free. I want to be my genuine self. That's my truth. It is of the utmost importance, therefore, because that is the ethos of the day, that we understand who gets to determine truth, who determines the reality of what is. We are joining Jesus here in the midst of preaching to a group of Jews, which includes some of the Pharisees, and it seems they're debating the merits of his proclamation amongst themselves. Now, you might notice in your Bibles, if you look forward or look back a little bit to the beginning of the chapter, that it might have a note in there, especially if you're in the ESV, that the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. If this is the case, then the situational context of this debate amongst the Jews and with Jesus is during what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. And this Feast of Tabernacles and the discussion around it began in chapter 7. And he's debating them during this prominent feast. Now, rabbinic sources say that during this feast, large lamps were lit in the temple courtyard. There was dancing and celebration with torches, and it occurred every night during the seven-day festival. And some sources say that the light emanated to such a degree that it lit up the entire ancient city. With this as the background, Jesus declares in 8.12 to be the light of the world. Let's look at this background section a bit more closely as it gives us the setup to our text. Join me in verse 12 there. It says, Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Jesus uses these symbols of light and darkness to speak of sight and blindness, sight of seeing truth that leads to life, or blindness to the truth that leads to death. In doing so, he's already pointing to who he is, what his mission is, and where he comes from. He's automatically granting himself deification as being one with the creator, creator, Father God. For it was the Father who spoke light into existence in the creation. It was the Father that gave light by the pillar of fire at night in the wilderness to wandering Israel. It was the Father's law that the psalmist declares as light to mark the way of the righteous. Jesus is pointing out clearly that it is God the Father, the creator, who is the one who determines and proclaims truth. Our psalm this morning that Patrick read earlier says this as well. The sum of your word, God's word, is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And it's in the midst of this truth, the truth, that life is found. And as we'll see in a minute, freedom is found. But notice the crowd's immediate counter-argument. They say, your witness of yourself is not true. The Jews are appealing to two things here. The first thing is the Torah law, the law presented by Yahweh himself. Through Moses, it requires two witnesses for a testimony to be seen as true. Their argument is that Jesus is the only one testifying he is the Messiah, the light of God, so his testimony must be false. They are rightly claiming 
that his view, his truth is subjective. It's as if they're saying, hey, what you're saying is coming only from your witness. It's only your subjective truth. Therefore, according to the Torah, your subjective statement is not truth at all. You see, the Jews understood what we're talking about today. No one person can know the truth. It's subjective. Truth is objective. It's outside of us. Now, Jesus clarifies with the fact that he is the greatest second witness that can be found, the Father himself, the creator God. And skip ahead a little bit and look at what he says about him. Look at verse 26, what he says about the Father. He says, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. God is true. Therefore, because Jesus came from God, the one who is true, his testimony about himself as the Messianic King and the Lord of God's people is also true. And it is in this declaration itself that Jesus is stating truth. He is declaring the greatest objective truth there is because all truth originates with God. Now notice one more thing before we get back into our main text. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus makes the point that they, as human beings, cannot help but judge based on the material world that they experience. They cannot judge but based on their fleshly existence. They are in bondage to it. And this includes both their bondage to being within the physical realm and locked within their finite viewpoint, but also their bondage in the spiritual sense, bondage to a rebellious nature that blinds them from the reality of God and his objective truth. But Jesus does not judge in the same sense. That's why he says, I judge no one, even though we know he's judged. He's saying, I'm not judging in the same sense. Even if he were to declare a judgment in his physical body, it would be true, because he is not in bondage, either physically or spiritually, like the rest of mankind. He comes from the Father and is intimately connected to the Father. He is not blinded by original sin. And because of his connection to the Father, he's not blinded by his finite human existence either. Jesus is declaring a pillar of philosophical truth here. For it is true that one that is engaged in an experience can rarely, if ever, provide an objective statement of what actually occurred. Just sit in a marriage counseling session with me and you'll know that this is true. Every argument we ever get into relationally, we want to defend as if our belief is objective truth when in fact it's not. We can't see the objective truth because we're involved in it. Putting it another way, it takes someone or something that transcends a situation to state objectively what actually occurred in reality. And friends, this is the basis of so much of what we do as a society. This is the basis of our entire judicial system. That is why a judge and an impartial jury are assembled to hear witness testimony to declare to the best of their ability what occurred. It is not a perfect system, but it is far more impartial than if the two parties involved had to debate what occurred. The jury and the judge, in a sense, transcend the event in question. This is the basic, uh, basis of all scientific thought. The scientific method is meant to act as a kind of transcendent experimentation that observes processes and the mechanics of the natural world in a mostly controlled environment to declare the truth, objective truth, of what is occurring. It is even the basis of mob mentality that has overtaken our society 
Because folks believe automatically that they can pass judgment in an instant if they see an edited video of an event that occurs. Humans implicitly believe that one transcends a given environment or event, then they must know the truth, and video supposedly gives that to us. And that is why they then riot based on a small amount of information. They're asserting their authority, believing falsely that they have objective truth. But all of these examples I give you have their limitations because at the end of the day, we are all still part of the event or circumstances that make up the physical world. We are not transcendent. We are imminent. We are finite. And so we have to look to someone, something outside of ourselves for truth. For there to be an ultimate determiner of truth, it must originate from an authority that exists outside of the bondage of the physical universe in which we exist. He alone can declare with complete impartiality what exists and what is reality. This boldly declares the point we are seeing. The creator God, by definition, is the one who defines objective truth. Only the Father God is true, and therefore, by extension, Jesus, as the one to whom the Father has given authority, is also true. So if we want truth, where do we go? We go to God's word. We go to God's word. But the Jews arguing with Jesus have a point. Out of a heart to be faithful to God's truth handed down to them through Moses, they're right in saying Jesus needs a second witness. So he says, I have one, it's the Father. How can they know if God the Father is truly witnessing on his behalf? Look at verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Jesus says, I will prove to you what I'm saying, and he did it when he was crucified on the cross and was glorified. Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father. And this was proof that he came from the Father and is the proclaimer of that truth. This historical event is what solidifies his witness. You cannot ignore it. You must either dismiss it or you have to accept it. And having, the set, having now set the basis for where truth originates, Jesus then speaks these powerful words, the beginning of our text. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Put another way, Jesus is proclaiming a clear demarcation between nominal false faith that says that it believes, but spends no time whatsoever sitting under the authority or lordship of God's word, and saving faith that is true. The evidence that separates the two is one who continues in and remains in the teachings of God's word. D.A. Carson puts it this way, A true disciple of Jesus is one who obeys God's word, seeks to understand it better, and finds it more precious, more controlling, precisely when other forces flatly oppose it. Jesus is clearly stating to the crowd here, You think you are disciples of God, but you're not. You may even quote biblical passages or ideas, but you are not disciples in truth. In fact, Jesus says, you cannot be real disciples because you do not abide in God's truth. You actually abide in the lies of the deceiver. And it's this next section in which he states clearly, 
There is a deceiver who seeks to undermine objective truth with subjectivity. There is a deceiver who seeks to undermine objective truth with subjectivity. Now, as we go back through it and we see here what he says about the father of lies, you might rightly push back that you're not seeing the word subjective or objective here. But notice that subjectivity is inherent in the passage. We can look back on this with 2020 hindsight uh, on the rest of the Gospels, the rest of the New Testament, and 2,000 years of church history and, and say, we know that Christ was who he said he was. But here, in the moment of this interaction, the Jews are seeing only in the flesh. They're judging only with their senses. For example, they say, you could not have been born of a virgin. That's ludicrous. We know this, they're saying. So you had to be born from immorality. They believe they were never enslaved to anyone. They say, we are Jews, and Jews, even in the midst of exile and bondage in Egypt, are free because we are sons of Abraham. But Jesus' whole point is that they're blind to the actual truth unless God grants them the ability to know the truth through him. They are stuck on the idea that because they are biological offspring of Abraham, that they inherit his faith. It would be akin to us saying, well, we obviously know the truth because we're Christians and we go to church. Well, that doesn't mean anything. They're stuck on this idea that they physically inherit truth. But Jesus is trying to point out that just because they believe it to be so does not mean that it is. For true faith is not by way of lineage. It's not simply being amongst God's people. It's not growing up in a Christian home, so to speak. It is being chosen and saved by God and being granted faith in him so that you can even understand the truth. You can even see it. And this is the point earlier in John that he says this. He's trying to make the exact same point in John 6. No one can come to me. In other words, you can't choose to follow Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. True faith is a reality only God can grant. And if that is not the case in a person's life, that God is not their father, then they must have their origins in another, the father of lies. Look again at verses 43 through 45 there in John 8. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks. Uh, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. It is exactly because Jesus tells them the truth that they do not believe him. For they cannot believe the truth. They are in bondage to the liar, the deceiver. They are in bondage to their own lordship. That they believe they are the ones who set the truth and set reality. Only in God's merciful conquering of them and drawing them to himself would they be free from that bondage. And Jesus then fleshes out who he is talking about here by referencing the fact that this deceiver has a character that stands in opposition to the truth. He says, there is no truth in him. He stands in opposition to the truth. He notes that his activity is to take away life. For Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning 
And this is a reference to the Garden of Eden and the fall of man. Let's go there now and look back at what he's referencing in Genesis 2. Would you turn there with me in your Bibles? Genesis 2, 15. We'll read Genesis 2, 15 through 17, and then 3, 1 through 7. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Take a look at 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, this is the deceiver, spoiler alert, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say that? No, he didn't say that. He did not say, neither shall you touch it. Notice that she's adding to the word of God. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the two methods that Satan uses in accomplishing his work of deception, rebellion, and murder. First, Satan cannot create any new reality, for reality comes from the one who creates it and therefore establishes truth. So the only thing that the deceiver can do as a created being is to twist, contort, and pervert what already is. Here, he takes God's truth and perverts it just enough to sound close, but has a completely opposite meaning. And you'll find this all over the place today. It sounds the same, but it's absolutely not. It sounds like the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's absolutely not. You'll find this everywhere. He contradicts the truth and then uses this deception to paint God's character as something completely opposite of reality. He speaks of God as if he was capricious and power hungry, as if he were the one with sinful intention. He also gets Eve to believe the impossible. She and her husband Adam were already formed to be like God in the way that they were created in God's likeness. Reflecting his good nature was their entire purpose. And yet, with a small deception, Satan tells her that she could do the impossible. She, the created creature, could become the creator. She could become Lord. There is a deceiver who seeks to undermine God's truth, and here he does it by appealing to the desire of the creature to be the one that determines truth, to be the one that is Lord. Secondly, the deceiver undermines God's truth by then, after putting this seed, this thought in her mind that she could be Lord, he then appeals to the sovereignty of the subjective truth of Eve's perception of reality. In essence, he says, I know your creator, king, and sovereign Lord laid out the truth for you that obedience to his commands is the best way to live. But look at it with your own perception, your own senses, your lived experience, and you determine truth for yourself. It can't be what he says it is, right? 
And so read again verses 6 and 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Who's acting as Lord in that text? Who's acting as Lord? She is. She is. This is what developing your own subjective truth does. It makes you feel justified in being Lord. Objectively, objectively, it is true that mankind is created to worship and obey God and enjoy him forever. Objectively, we are created to sit 100% under the lordship of God. And it is objectively true that when we do that, like a well-oiled machine, all of the created order flourishes. But subjectively, to the creature that is unwilling to admit their place below the authority of God, this seems innately wrong, unfair, and cruel. But it's only because the creature is not the authority defining the created order and making it function according to their subjective truth. And so we take the bait that Satan has laid out. We doubt God's good order and attempt to usurp his throne, assert our rights, and demand that we be allowed sovereignty over our own lives. The sad fact is, as we'll learn next week, God is such a gentleman. He says, okay, see how that works. And he gives us over to our own lordship. At the core of subjectivity is the desire to be God and declare right from wrong, good from evil, truth from what is false. It is the desire to be the sovereign authority. It is the same desire that is the seed of rebellion over the one who is objective truth, the true and singular authority. And so back in John 8, if we go back there now, back in John 8, we see this same rebellion at work in the minds and hearts of the Jews to whom Jesus is preaching. They believe that because they are biological offspring of Abraham, that they are automatically in submission to God's truth. But it is this exact self-righteousness that blinds them to hearing the words of Jesus as the express messenger of God's truth. If they were of God, they would listen to Christ as he proclaimed the word of God, but they are not. And so they stand in their own subjective truth, masking it with Scripture when in reality, they are not under the lordship of God at all. Friends, how often do you and I do the same thing in our daily lives? Scripture presents us truth. Another brother or sister presents us truth from the word. But it is a truth that humbles us, requires self selflessness, submission, and the death of our own authority. And so we fight. We fight for our own lordship. We try to contort God's word for our own use. We dismiss blatantly obvious scriptures because the reality of who God says he is and how he works is offensive to our human sensibilities. We try to justify our stance because we proclaim to be Christians just like the mob before Christ proclaimed to be Jews. In all these things, we are exchanging the truth of God for a lie of our own invention. Paul told Timothy this would be the marker in the visible church as time grows closer of Christ's return. We read it earlier in our reading. This is 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, 
But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You could just take out the teachers and put podcasts. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The word myth here is not just mythical creatures like Greek mythology. The word myth is fictions, things that are untrue. It is not a stretch to say here that Paul was communicating that people would give up the objective truth of God's word to replace it with messages from teachers that speak deception that line up with the hearer's subjective truth. And far too many so-called churches, so-called preachers, are all too happy to embrace this fleshly desire. And so they create sermons and retreats and conferences and materials that are not focused on glorifying God and submitting to his authority, but are focused on scratching the consumeristic itch of those who attend who want to be lifted up as the authority, celebrated, and have their subjective needs and desires met. Meanwhile, the people are glorifying themselves, believing blindly that they are glorifying God. All of this is our flesh. All of it is clawing for our own authority. And while this fleshly nature reigns supreme, we are blind, deaf, and ignorant of the truth that God is creator, God is king, God is Lord, and we are not. We exist in the objective truth of his dominion, not the subjective truth of our own kingdom of false narratives. To believe anything else is to believe in a lie and sit under the father of lies. A fabrication of our own perverse original sin and our all-too-willing hearts go to grasp onto the illusion of sovereign authority to determine right from wrong, good from evil, truth from deception. We do this whenever we convince ourselves that truth exists outside of God's word. But sadly, those who attempt to do so will find themselves devolving further and further into their own destruction. I have seen this in Christian after Christian after Christian after Christian in 20 years. They latch onto an idea that is not orthodox and slowly but surely they devolve into deception and eventually give up their faith, if they had faith ever at all. For God gives us over to the delusion that we are our own authority. And this is what Paul paints in 2 Thessalonians 2 when he describes how the world will fall more and more under the authority of Satan. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Notice the discussion of truth and deception here. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We read this and we go, what a horrible God. He would delude us? He would send us delusion? No, he just simply gives us over to our already existent delusion that we're Lord. That's what he's doing. The strong delusion is, sure, go ahead, believe you're the one who's in authority. This delusion that we are our own authority becomes a bondage and a slavery from which it is impossible to break free. If we set ourselves up as Lord, it's a bondage from which it is impossible to break free. Impossible, that is, without the gracious and divine intervention of the triune God. For it is through his divinely inspired rescue plan that he gave us a way to be freed from the lies of our own sovereignty so that we could stand in the truth of his lordship. 
For the lordship of Christ will one day be known across the cosmos as he brings judgment upon all of his rebellious creation. But to show his mercy, he sent his son to die in our place, resurrect from the dead, be enthroned above his new creation, and draw a specific people to himself. And these people are his citizens that are called to walk in his objective truth, the commands of his word. To those whom he shows mercy, he has poured out his spirit into our hearts to give us the ability to know him as Savior, to submit to him as Lord, and to welcome submission to the unchanging truth of his word. That's what it is to be saved. It is to welcome submission to Christ's word. To be his is to admit that our subjective truth Our subjective lordship is false. His subjective truth, his objective truth is reality. And we will do well to walk in his lordship. And when we do this, when we do this, we find immense freedom. And this was Jesus' point right at the beginning of our text. True disciples of Christ find freedom by abiding in the truth of God's word. This is the crux of the message to the Jews in John 8. Compare two sections with me again, 847 and 831 and 32. 847 says this, Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And John 8, 31 through 32, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Those whom God has called to himself, whom he has freed by the power of his saving grace, hear the words of God and follow them. Yes, not perfectly, but it is a joy to follow the commands of Christ. And we find that when we don't, oh man, life gets rough and we want nothing more than to sprint back into the commands of Christ. But those whom he has not saved by the power of his saving grace cannot hear the truth. So how does one know if one is a true disciple under the lordship of Christ? Well, Jesus makes it clear. You seek after God's word because you are of God and desire to know his truth. You accept it as truth over and above your own feelings, desires, and subjective truth. And you endure in that stance no matter what comes. And when you fail, stumble, or fall, like we all do, you admit that for a moment you fell back into your own sovereign lordship, but then you repent and turn back to Christ's rule in your life by his word. And when you do so, you find peace and freedom from the tyranny of selfishness and the desire to be lord and master of your own life. You find freedom from bondage to the lies that come with self-deception and subjective truth. Let me explain what I mean with the example of relationships. Whether it be Christian marriages or parenting or friendships. In any of these cases, you have two parties arguing over their right of sovereignty in the relationship. Spouses, if you're arguing with your spouse, that's what you're doing. I'm Lord. No, I'm Lord. No, I'm Lord. No, I'm Lord. Parents with kids. How's that one going? When your kids say, no, what are they doing? They're saying, I'm Lord, right? Each party is fully assured of their own subjective truth. 
Imagine any and all conflicts you've ever seen or been part of. This is what happens. And that's binding, isn't it? That's frustrating and exhausting and destructive. And so what do we do? We argue over the details of the conflict in order to try and prove ourselves as the one who determines truth. You said this. I said this. When I did that, you did this. We fight and claw to devour one another with our own lordship and sovereignty so that we can define good and evil, not by God's objective truth, but by our own subjective experience. We believe we have been wronged, and so we act as judge and jury as if our experience is the only reality. And notice that as Christians, we often take pieces of our understanding of God's word into account, not for us to submit under, but for us to hold over the other person. We do this when we believe we are taking into account the whole counsel of God's word, but we are really picking and choosing pieces of his word to back our sovereign opinion. What we need to do is submit ourselves to the whole of the Lord's word before we ever even enter into the discussion. Friends, I can't tell you how many times I have had spouses bring up Ephesians 5 talking about the other person sitting on the couch with them. And the first thing I do is go, why don't you read your section first? See how that goes, and then we might talk about the other person. See, we want to lord over rather than submit under the Lord. So let's imagine for a moment that both parties fully agree to let an independent third party come, collect all the data evidence, observe all the camera footage from the conflict in question. That third party would be able to then give an objective truth to both parties that was outside of themselves to settle the dispute. And both parties just then repent and confess where needed and could choose to forgive and remember the sin no more where needed. This sounds wonderful, doesn't it? If you can find that service and give it to me for marriage counseling, I would use it. But it can only happen if both parties give their power of judgment and sovereignty over to the third party. Do you notice that? In giving up power and authority, they are gaining the freedom to walk in peace and relationship. Well, we have that third party, don't we? We have that third party in the triune God. We have that third party in the extension of his authority in the word of God. And that's what defines the kingdom of God's people. Those who are truly the, the disciples of Christ have given up their self-justification, their supposed sovereign authority to run their lives or relationships the way that they believe best. And they now sit under the authority of God's word. And this is why speaking truth is the core heartbeat of God's people. There are two places, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, that I'll show you really quick that speak this. Zechariah 8.16, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. This was at the core of the commands of the Old Testament. And then he reiterates the exact same message in the New Testament. This is not a law that was removed because of Christ. It was emphasized because of Christ. Ephesians 4.25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This does not mean simply being blunt. It does not mean being straightforward. I think that's often how we might interpret this passage. I'm going to speak truth. You ready to hear it? You can't handle the truth, we think, right? Well, it's not that kind of bluntness or straightforwardness. Nor does it mean speaking your opinion that you believe to be truth directly. It means realigning ourselves constantly 
to the fact that our subjective opinion and experience in this life is not sovereign. That's what it means. If you're going to a person to speak truth to them because you have the authority of God's word in your hand and you're ready to use it, you should not go talk to them. You should pray and get the Lord to change your heart to realize you are the one with the plank in your eye first and you need to go talk to them out of that spirit. Realigning ourselves constantly to the fact that our subjective opinion and experience in life is not sovereign. It is not the authority. Only God's truth is the authority in the life of the Christian disciple. So when we have disagreements, it truly means both parties humbly admitting that they are not the authority, even on themselves. God is. It means both parties humbly admitting that their subjective experience is not the truth. Only God's word is. And that, humility, and that humility will allow both parties to approach one another with an open-handedness and an open-heartedness to receive a righteousness that can come from Christ alone rather than a false, self-produced righteousness. As we continue through this series, we're going to be looking at what this surrender to the objective authority of God's word looks like in detail. But we must start here. We must start here first this morning. Each of us, in our relationship to the Lord, but then also in our marriages, in our relationships with our roommates, our friends, our parents, our children, and on our relationship to one another as covenant members, we must surrender our authority to the Lord. And we must pray for God's Spirit to help us decide right here, right now, that we are not the authority. Christ is. And we must realize that the heart change that is required to empower this truth in our lives cannot come from dogged obedience or simply becoming more self-controlled by cocooning ourselves away from the world. It must come from a place outside of ourselves. It must come from an objective authority. It must come from Christ. Because, friend, I've seen it far too many times. If you do it based on your own authority, it will fail and you will fall. It must come from Christ. So collectively, as a church, would you now join me and agree with me in prayer as I ask the Lord to get us to this starting point where the Word of God is the authority in our lives, that by His Holy Spirit, He will make our hearts fertile ground for His Word. And as I ask Him to conquer our rebellious spirits, the desire to be the authority of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father God, I often wonder how I would respond if I were standing amidst this crowd of people in John chapter 8. In your sovereignty, you've seen fit to place us in this time and space that we're in now, but I wonder how we would have responded if we were there. Would we have responded in our own justification and authority, or would we have listened and submitted to the physical manifestation of your word? Lord, we want to be a people in this church that have no authority on our own. We want to be a people that are submitted to you, that give all authority to you, that sit under your lordship. We know that any difficulty in our relationships, in our own hearts, in our emotions, in our actions, any difficulty, any sin, it comes from a place of not submitting to you and not laying our lives down. You tell us that if we give up our lives, we will gain them. And yet we hold so tightly to control and power. Lord, we know that we can't just change that by trying harder, by trying a different reading plan, by trying to get in the word more. 
Lord, it has to come from you first. You have to change our hearts. You have to circumcise our hearts to remove the lordship of our own lives so that we might submit to you and we might cherish your word.